Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Oh, Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Randall Gazzarioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. Tibble. From inside the centre square. Welcome to episode 90 of Americans Watching the Footy. This is our round six recap, I guess our Anzac Appeal round recap. A five-day round and a lot to talk about here. I'm Benjamin Castle alongside my brother Ethan in South San Francisco, California. And actually, this isn't the first time we're talking about footy even today in a format like this because Craig Wessels of A Yank on the Footy had us on his live show a few hours ago. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Got to speak with Mick Ossing finally. Also, Bulldog supporter Tim Alfred. It was just, it was fun. And because Alfred is a physician, I believe, it was interesting to hear some of his talk about some of the medical situations that have been going on around the league and around footy outside the AFL as well. So definitely check that out once you're done with this show. Add him to your queue. Also, I played footy the other day. You had a bit of a kick with the gagoffle. Yeah, it was like a little, it ended up being like 11 on 11 scrimmage on kind of a smaller field. It was 12 minute quarters, but just realizing just how much running you have to do, even at the forward positions, like, wow, I have a lot of appreciation for what these guys are doing, like even more than I already did. Did you have the Telstra tracker on you? No, but I would not have run very far, but I might go to a couple of the other clinics and stuff. I no way close to being in good enough shape to actually play at a competitive level, but, like, to have a few skills, at least, would be awesome. So I'm probably going to go out to another thing Thursday. And, yeah, if you're listening to this in the U.S. and you're in the vicinity of a good-sized city, you probably have a small community of footy players around. And if you ever want to get out and just be around people that actually understand footy, that's the way to do it. A late start to the round, because this was the first week in which we did not have a Thursday game, so it started with a slightly later starting Friday game, the Len Hall tribute game between Frio and the Dogs, and our trend of being disappointed in the Dockers continues. Frio 10-9-69, nice. defeated by the Bulldogs 17-16-118. Where do you want to begin with this one, Ethan? Frio were more preoccupied with talking shit and trying to fight Rory Lobb than they were with actually playing, and it cost them, I think... The sequence that really summed up this game came late in the third quarter with the Dogs already up 18. Jamari Ubelhagen hits the ball on the wrong side of his foot on the set shot, but everyone's too busy trying to fight Lob, and Adam Trelor ends up with a free goal out of it to put the Dogs up by 24. And I mean, that, that really just represented this game very well. Teams also got into it before the game. You had... Multiple exchanges throughout the game between Luke Ryan and Aaron Naughton, but it seemed like Alex Pierce was really the one who started it, and it's like, 
that's not what a captain is supposed to do. Like, these are the sort of things people expect out of, like, Toby Green. Instead, we've gotten them out of Pierce and, like, James Sicily, which... I mean, Sicily makes sense, but Alex Pierce, so far, at least from the outside, has not proved to be captain material. Maybe from the inside, you know, he says all the right stuff, leads by example. I don't know, but what we're able to see, and most importantly, the on-field results suggest that he hasn't been able to back it up yet. And in his particular defensive role, I didn't like what he was doing either. He was playing too high up. He wasn't keeping with Jamar Hagen 1v1. And admittedly, Hagen was not a great kick, but he was a very strong mark. He had a career-high 10 marks. His previous best was 7, which he got last year against the Lions. So he had a lot of opportunities. Of course, Jamar did create some of them, but Pierce being so loose toward him didn't help either. And I just think in general, the Frio defenders have been a little too loose on the back. The most that I've liked one of their, you know, established back players has been when Hayden Young's been involved at stoppages. Not like defensive work, but on ball with clearance. The main positive takeaway I had from this game was Bailey Williams. That's Bailey L. Williams. Although maybe, you know what? Bulldogs will now be spelled B-U-L-D-O-G-S. And then that other L can go between the T and the E in Fremantle. Yeah, it's starting to get to the point where, you know, we've asked who's going to step up for the dogs besides their main core. Now I'm starting to wonder if we can even count Williams in that. I mean, this was obviously his finest performance. Three goals on 23 disposals. But he's become a pretty consistent piece. That midfield to half forward role has opened up for more Bulldogs players since the departure of Josh Dunkley. And with Bailey Smith out for this road trip as well, Williams has had even more of a chance to really show his worth, and he has. He had his first three-goal game of his career. The other big positive for the Dogs was much less surprising, and it's just Marcus Bonapelli. He should never be off the oval for them. If he's not in the midfield, you can rest him at full forward because he belongs in both spots. He's a taller midfielder who's willing and, as we'll talk near the end, able to get up in contests. And he's a player who just does the right things, knows the right angles to take all over the ground. It was a dominant game from him, and right now I'd probably have him in a rolling top three for the Brownlow, along with Jordan Dawson and Nick Dacos. Obviously, you know, we've talked a lot about Nick Dacos as the Brownlow favorite, but Bob Pelly's playing some of his absolute best football. Best football and captain's football at the same time. Tim English remains really good. I think last year we forgot as the year went on, just how good Adam Trelaw is. He reminded us in this game, and I don't care what you think about his stand on vaccination stuff and his decision not to play last year, but Liam Jones is a really quality intercept defender, and no matter if you think he's a hero or a terrible person, like you gotta watch the guy's game and think like, oh yeah, that guy's pretty good. He was on Luke Jackson a decent amount, and Liam Jones and Tim English consistently won their defensive battles the entire night. English is the most functional, tall, all over the oval, I believe, in in the entire league. Yes, if you have to categorize him, he's a ruck, but he is just footy player. I did get some more appreciation after playing on Sunday, just like how much ruckmen have to move all over the ground to be ready for anything. And it's just like, he's clearly got the tank for it. The thing is, at this level, you got to be able to do more than just win the hit out. 
And you know, especially because you're going to be near the ball at basically every stage. And you don't necessarily need to win that immediate hit out. Now, English often didn't. He often puts it to advantage. Like in the Geelong Sydney game, Mark Blitzobs kind of let Pierre Adams win a tap, but basically created space for Zach Guffrey to be the one to end up with the ball. And I like seeing teams that have kind of displayed the creativity in those contests. Like, I don't think the Suns, for example, do that. Like, Jared Witts can give you 50 hitouts on any day, but I'm not seeing them, like, employ creative strategies like other teams have. Already mentioned most of the Bulldogs' good performers, but the actual stat rundown. Adam Trelore, two goals and 35 disposals. Bombs and Belly, two goals, 31 disposals, 18 contested possessions. An octopus, eight clearances and 528 meters. Remember, an octopus normally has to do with the number eight. In this case, it's 10 because 10 tackles. Jack McRae, 29 disposals, 20 contested possessions, 14 clearances. Almost like he belongs in the midfield. I remember there was a game where Luke Beveridge started him, I believe, at full forward in the second half. And uh, yeah, that that's not what Jack McRae is or what he ever was. Tom Libertori, a goal, 25 disposals, 16 contested possessions, 8 tackles and 7 clearances. He will not be playing against Hawthorne next week. He got concussed late in the game. Yeah, got sandwiched that as he was going to ground for the ball. Ended up being Andrew Brayshaw and Michael Walters who got on either side of him. There were worries that Brayshaw could be suspended for it. Glad he wasn't. He wasn't at fault there. Ugly geometry is the term for that. Caleb Daniel, a goal and a behind off, 22 disposals. Weird to see him playing further and further forward as his career got on, but it seems to be working. One of the best either leg kicks in the competition still. So he's amphibious. This is a reference to, I believe, a San Francisco Chronicle article. No, it was not in the Chronicle. And it wasn't then about something from the East Coast, actually. Um, that looks like, oh, never mind. He was from the East Oregonian. Oh, wow. You know what? I think I thought it was Chronicles that has that same typeface. This was uh, when an ambidextrous pitcher, Pat Venditti, made his Major League debut for the Oakland A's a number of years back. And instead, the headline said, Amphibious Pitcher, because apparently Pat Venditti is a frog. Doesn't surrender like one. This paper, by the way, based in Pendleton, Oregon, home to a famous rodeo, the Pendleton Roundup. Oof. Tim English, 34 hitouts, 20 disposals, and 7 tackles. Efficiency inside 50, 3-0 at an okay, not great, 46.7. The Dogs, 61.7. That's again where that loose defense in the Frio defensive 50 really costs them. Shocker, Caleb Sarong was Frio's best player again, and in tight spaces. 35 disposals, 19 contested possessions, and 10 clearances. Luke Ryan had 30 from 10 marks and gained 619 meters, but that's just kind of what he does in the back with how slow Frio still are and how much they rely on trying to look for the Ryan angle from the back as opposed to pushing forward and using the pace that their list is capable of having. Will Brody had 26 disposals. Good that he was back in the main lineup. Andrew Brayshaw had 23 and 11 tackles. Sean Darcy kicked 1-1 and had 53 hitouts, but was the less effective of the two rucks over the full oval. Two other little things about this game. The Bulldogs' white jumper sucks. It's that the stripes are too low. The stripes are too big and too low. I loved the look last year. 
now it looks like it's something from 60 or 70 years ago that should have been left 60 or 70 years ago. Before, it reminded me of, like, Aquafresh toothpaste in a good way. Hmm. Or the Dutch flag. I like how Bulldog supporters just sometimes have massive Dutch flags. Some of them have it in their Twitter profiles as well. Or you could do, like, Romanian flags for the Crows as well. Or, like, the Sir- the flag from Serbia and Montenegro when it was, like, post-Yugoslavia. It was, like, the Yugoslav flag without the star when Serbia and Montenegro were together still. The divorce proceedings had already started. What's the other thing? Frio not playing the Kevin Parker song until the start of the fourth quarter. I don't know if it has much to do with their third quarters being shitty, but I feel like it would help. I mean, it's cool to have a badass song before the fourth quarter, but I liked that it was always coming back for the second half. It was the thing. Plus, it like incentivizes the fans like be in your seats two minutes before the third quarter. I don't know if they've been playing the same song every time before third quarter this year, but this time it was Purple Hat by Sophie Tucker, which does not set the mood at all for that. It was like EDM trance stuff for that. No, no. I, I liked it being the start of the second half song. You could you could have a cool fourth quarter song too, but I think like a lot of times if you're coming back to your seats after halftime, you're like in a relaxed state. I, I can attest to that at going to games myself or even like after spending, you know, fucking around for 15 minutes at halftime at a high school football game. It's just like, oh yeah, I guess time for the third quarter instead of being all like, locked in and fired up so having that song i think it actually makes a difference either that or just blast purple haze is the only other option there are enough purple songs you can always do highway star by deep purple one of the cheesiest songs ever purple haze would really fit though anyway uh, they should work on that yeah speaking of awesome songs even as an eagles member i couldn't resist i sang along to never tear us apart before the game because that's just really special, and I love how Port have really embraced that song and really made it part of their identity relating to the history of some of their supporters, and Port ran away with their game against the Eagles in the second quarter. They kicked six goals to one as West Coast capitulated early again. They were pretty much even in the second half, but there wasn't really that much investment for only knowing that the result was decided. Port 16-13-109, defeating West Coast 10-9-69. Nice again. Positive signs from the Eagles. Uh, Jai Cully was playing more forward, and while I don't want that to be his long-term role, he did kick four goals, including one, like, close-range torp on the run thingy, and another where he barely got his foot to it. It was like... It felt like a very cheap four goals. One time where I actually agreed with Durant Brereton. I saw very little of this game. I was I was watching a high school badminton match, actually, which was actually pretty fun. And I got free food out of it after. I mean, I would have gone even if it wasn't for the free food. So, yeah, I mean, 49 second quarter. That was your game. Yep. As I said, six goals to one. Um, What else to talk about? Ollie Lord's debut. Had some first-game jitters early on, got over them to kick a couple. He's going to need to be important over these next few weeks. Charlie Dixon was out for this one, which allowed Lord to enter. And Lord could definitely stay up, considering Todd Marshall got concussed. His head went straight into Liam Duggan's shoulder early in the second quarter, and he was subbed out before halftime. Also, another reason Lord could get more opportunities this year is because Mitch Georgiades did his ACL in the sandful. So 
he's done. And who knows, that could have been his last game for Port in general because his contract's up and he's a Westerner. I don't think Georgiadis's injury hurts Port as a team that much. I think it just hurts him as a player because he kind of loses chances to audition. I don't know if he was going to factor into Port long term, whether he's going to go West or wherever he ends up. Just this throws a wrench into his career path. As for Ollie Lord, apparently his grandfather played for Geelong in the 50s and 60s, mostly 60s. He won the Brown Loan in 1962 and the Kargi Greaves. That's Alistair Lord, not to be confused with the Alistair Lord on Essendon's list. I'm not sure if those two are related, but learn this on Twitter from Rory Kilpatrick. So thanks, Glicko. Future Cat. I guess we got to start the Future Cat watch then. But Lord was described on the broadcast and then by Ken Hakley as kind of an old school player who's willing to crash contests and kind of go against the grain a lot. And that sort of aggression has definitely been missing from Port at ground level. So glad to see that. So Alistair Lord, the one on Essendon's list, does not appear to be related and is from South Australia. So maybe he ends up at Port eventually. Lord Swap, will we, will we just call it a conversion? Or I was just thinking like wife swap, but with like fiefdoms. Other biggest takeaway from Port is that Jeremy Fidley said is continuing to do really good work going forward from Ruck contest. He only took 11 contests and only got five hitouts off them, but Port scored 3-1 from those 11 Ruck contests he took. Thinking about how Ken Hinckley has adjusted his role since he arrived at Port and how it's allowed him to get a permanent spot in the list. Hinckley's actually been moving around a lot of players this year. Travis Boak's gone to the wing in a half-board spot. Neither he nor Ollie Wines are taking center bounces as much. And that's allowing just that younger trio of Connor Rosie, Zach Butters, and Jason Horn Francis to attend more bounces. Rosie and Butters were already doing that, and they often had been running together on the oval anyway. Now they have a third piece that they can work in there. Darcy Byrne-Jones continued his good work as a pressure half-forward. That started as a sub-role in round four. Now he's got his first two multi-goal games of his career back-to-back. And also with Todd Marshall out, watch for Ryan Burton to have a more prominent role as a forward. I thought that was kind of a move out of necessity, but Burton's a good long kick, and he had a goal in the fourth quarter. That young trio did do the most important work in the trenches for Port, and it's no surprise, given his productive day, from the center bounces forward that Connor Rosie was best on ground and won the Peter Badco medal. Rosie, two goals, one behind, 29 disposals, 714 meters gained. Zach Butters, 25 disposals. Willem Drew, a goal, a behind, 25 disposals and an octopus. Ollie Wines, 25 disposals, 13 contested possessions. You thought I was going to say it, I'm not going to this time. Dan Houston, 22 disposals, 506 meters gained. Prunk McKenzie, 16 disposals, 520 meters gained. And Jeremy Finlayson, 5-2, which is just awesome especially considering his wife's condition has only gotten worse. I thought he was probably my second pick for the medal after Rosie and about Drew. He's just been having a really good start to the season. And there was a Port fan on Twitter who asked, when is anybody outside a 25-kilometer radius around Alberton Oval going to start talking about Willem Drew? Well, hi. I measured it as the Adelaide Crows fly as one, and we're 
just under 13,000 kilometers away from Alberton. We know he's dead. Catch up, rest of Australia. Tim Kelly, unsurprisingly, was the disposal leader for the Eagles. He's had a solid season, which would get more recognition on a better team. 34 disposals, 15 contested possessions, and 8 clearances. Andrew Gaff had 32. Please stay healthy because Luke Shuey can't. He hurt his ankle and was subbed out. Jake Waterman kicked 1-1 from 23 disposals and 10 marks. He should not be taking ruck contests, especially if Bailey J. Williams is starting to look a bit better there. 37 hitouts, 21 disposals, 16 contested, and 13 clearances. Just developing more with more time. I don't think he's going to be that first-rate guy because Harry Barnett exists and will hopefully debut at some point this year. Jaden Hunt had 19 disposals and 8 marks, but a nice older addition to the list. And Tom Barris had 17 disposals, 12 intercepts, and 10 marks. More independent and looks more like himself, honestly, without Jeremy McGovern there. GWS 13987 defeated by Brisbane, 16-12-108. Three things. Benjamin and I kind of called it. I, in particular, called it. Tom Green watched the game with the Tom Green fan club. Remember, he was suspended for a dangerous tackle. The jumper clash was not as bad as I thought it would be because the gold was so light for Brisbane. I still would rather have seen them in white or the Giants in black or Brisbane in just their home maroons, but it, it wasn't as terrible as I thought it would The Giants' charcoal jumper is badass. I think it's the best clash jumper in the league alongside Richmond's yellow. The GWS Twitter icon is now all charcoal, which makes me think that's what they're going to be wearing for Sydney Derby this week. They usually do. Makes sense. And Charlie Cameron. Yeah. Seven goals, tying a venue record. Stuart Lowe kicked seven in a 49-point loss for the Saints against the Kangaroos in round eight, 2002. Weird to see a big goal haul like that in a loss of that margin. And Cameron's second goal. I mean, he's not, he's got a hand on the car, right? He has to. You know what they should do to decide it? Should be one of those, like, everyone puts their hand on the car. Last one to take it off wins Cole of the Year. Off. Yes. Fly Mr. Beast to Australia. It would get so many more people caring about footy. Fuck it, do it. That Cameron goal, if this was done with a soccer ball, it would just be a normal, nice goal, you know, centering pass, and he kind of just, tapped it in but this is done with an object that should not do that and it was one of those ridiculous goals there are two types of ridiculous goals one type is the you know as you see it happen you go Whoa, like the zach dewey goal last week and the other is the one where you kind of have to go back rewind it and go like wait did he really just that more more than did he really just do that did he really mean to do that the answer to both questions was fuck yeah you could tell just by, like, where he was looking and what his reaction was. This was intentional, and it was awesome. I believe the word is deadly. So that's that's my biggest takeaway from this game. The biggest things for me, um, on a team level, on a structural level, the Lions did a good job getting numbers back in defense and really forcing GWS to slow down. He didn't see much of that orange tsunami in the first half in particular, and the Lions led by 19 at halftime. So they did meaningful work then, then kicked five goals to one in the third. And that allowed me to just kind of go and focus on Geelong and get ready for that. So that was nice of them to put it out of reach. 
yeah, the Giants did work their way back into the game somewhat. And impressively, they did it without Sam Taylor because he really did his hamstring in the earlier part of the third quarter. I don't think you realized, Ethan, how severe it was when it happened. Yeah, when I saw it, it was kind of like, ooh, that might not be good. Oh, okay, he looks fine. And then he he wasn't fine. And he... I knew I knew right away because it reminded me of some of the reactions from Luke Shuey in the past and Joe Lamorty this year. Just that sort of anguish at knowing what the injury is. So for the Giants to stay in the game and actually win the fourth quarter without Taylor was some some nice resilience there. It did force Harry Himmelberg to go back as a defender, which I'm totally okay with. I like him being able to be in that swingman role. But the biggest individual takeaway I have, other than Charlie Cameron, is that Jack Payne was really effective as that free defender, that extra guy in the back line. Harris Andrews was playing against Harry Himmelberg for much of the game before Himmelberg went back in the fourth quarter. In the first half, Payne had game highs with six marks and seven intercept possessions. And again, Sam Taylor was healthy for the first half. Nick Haynes is going to have to do a whole lot of intercepting without Taylor, and I don't think he's particularly great at it. I think he's okay. If he was like the fourth or fifth best defender, that would be a pretty legit team, but he has to be more than that, so... I mean, right now he needs to be number one, especially because I imagine Himmelberg will still have some forward time. I mean, it's going to be Haynes and, I guess, Isaac Cumming and Connor Iden. <laughs> Isaac T. He Cumming, you mean. Or you could just say it like a Gungan and make it sound really wrong. But it's nice to see a couple different contributors get involved for GWS. Xavier O'Halloran had a pretty nice performance. Brent Daniels looked pretty good. There are building blocks there. You know, it's going to be a slow climb and it's going to be especially tough not having too many players that they can entice to come home. But if you told me this was where they'd be at this point, two and four, only one game where they really got embarrassed, that's pretty good. I mean, and and I think we should have considered actually really no game where they truly been embarrassed. I mean, losing to the Eagles when they were healthy wasn't that embarrassing. Carlton would have kicked their asses if they'd kicked straight, but whatever. Same goes for Essendon. You know what we forgot in hindsight is that the Giants are like gods in round one pretty much every year. Last year, notwithstanding, but most years, they're like unstoppable in round one. Like Melbourne's storm level unstoppable? Yeah. I was looking at some old scores today because I was researching something, and it's just like, they've been at the top of the ladder after round one a lot. And... I guess that also is why we can kind of give the Crows a bit of a pass for that loss. We probably shouldn't, but I'll I'll give it a bit of a pass. Anyway, just the Giants are about where they were last year without the weight of expectations. They're not a team that I'm excited to watch week in and week out right now. And they've got a really nasty stretch of games that just started. After this, Swans, Bulldogs, Pies, Saints, Cats, Tigers... I mean, if that's a more healthy Richmond, that could be competitive-ish. But I think they're going to be a tough out, and they're much more competitive than I think a lot of people would have anticipated. So if they get blown out in the Sydney Derby, I'm not going to be surprised. Not going to totally change my perception of them unless something awful happens. 
they're not as much of a disaster as they could be. Stat lines for the Lions, Daniel Rich resumed his normal role, 27 disposals at 750 meters gained. Hugh McCluggage had 21. Joe Danaher kicked 1-1 from 16, gained 630 meters. Some of those were obviously from kicks, but enough of a mover on the ground as well. And getting time as a second ruck, especially with Darcy Ford being omitted to allow Jack Dunstan to come back in after he was managed. And um, yeah, Charlie Cameron kicked 7-2. Was really hoping he would get that eighth to get the venue record all to himself. But still, damn good game. On the GWS side, Josh Kelly behind 41 disposals, including 17 contested possessions and 618 meters. Makes sense that you see these really active numbers from the midfield because they're the accelerators when the Giants are at their best. And when the Giants are forced to play more slowly, the ball just gets clogged there. So to see Kelly and Canelio with high numbers isn't shocking. Yeah, Canelio, 38 disposals, 9 clearances, 8 tackles. Nice day for him to be in your fantasy squad. He's in it every day. He's been my vice captain lately. Nick Haynes, 27 disposals, 11 intercepts, 581 meters. Harry Perryman, behind 24 disposals, 15 contested possessions. Lockie Whitfield, 23 disposals. Toby Green, 2 goals, a behind and 22 disposals. Brent Daniels, 4 goals, a behind and 20 disposals. Xavier O'Halloran, 3 goals, 17 disposals, 471 meters. I think we forgot about O'Halloran at the start of the year because he was hurt. He was obviously kind of a guy, was the thing. He's only 22, was there, uh, was pick 22 back in 2018, so still got time to grow into things. This was just his second game for the year, and I think Adam Kingsley is going to end up needing to rely on him a bit when you're looking at that post-Toby Green future. And then we had the grand final rematch, or really, it was almost a grand final replay, except the teams didn't tie, and this was like more than half a year later. In fact, in many ways, this was a better game for Geelong than the grand final was. Max Holmes was able to play. He had the return of Sam Simpson and Silk kicked a couple. And the margin was bigger. Hell, they held the Swans goalless in the second half. Who the hell does that? Geelong 2010-130, defeating Sydney 5-7-37. Yes, it's an undermanned Swans side. No McCartan brothers. No Rampy. No Buddy, even though he isn't what he used to be. No Almarty. No matter. The Cats. And by the way, uh, congrats to John Segler. He didn't play because his partner had given birth earlier in the week, and that was what allowed Simpson to come in for the first time since the 2021 qualifier. Ethan, Cats member, just go. Just like last year's grand final, I regret not drinking more while this game was going on, but I was in a very good mood, and it's like, I'm not going to go to the fridge. I'm just going to sit here and enjoy this. Sam Simpson coming back? Holy shit. Um... He made a real case to stay in the lineup. So with Segler likely being back in next week and, you know, and Buse needing to slot back in, I mean, seems like a great time to manage Zach Tui, which I, I saw someone on Twitter suggest, forget who, but it, it seems like a logical time. It seems like a time to manage somebody. I don't know, but this is, you know what this is? Fun. Suffering from success. Having too many good players and not enough spots is great. Also, Shout out to John Segler's wife or girlfriend for giving birth the week of a game where you really didn't need a true Ruckman because as much as I don't think he's a very good player at this stage of his career, 
I think you've got to have him in there against Essendon, so really good timing on that. I mean, maybe you could still duel with the Blitzobs-Deconing mix. I really liked how that worked, and I love that Deconing was just, like, at one point playing up the ground on the wing. This kid's such a fucking ridiculous athlete. This was a really complete performance altogether. As usual, the Cats were great off forward 50 stoppages, whether it was, you know, from a throw-in or a ball-up, and something they'd kind of been good at against the Swans before. Cam Guthrie was not perfect, but he was way better. Jack Bowes, holy shit, he's really getting familiar with what's being asked of him and starting to settle in nicely. On the defensive side, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Kind of playing as, like, you know, right around... It seems like most of his better plays came right around, like, the edge of the defensive 50, kind of that area around there and the edge of the center square. I saw Verado Galea giving up fewer frees, starting to figure it out. I think not playing against at all, obviously, is a part of that, but also just getting more comfortable and playing next to Sam DeConing and playing next to Tom Stewart. Good things happen. On the Swan side, Nick Blakey was awful, which is weird because I think he's a really good player, but he was getting punked repeatedly in the first half. Maybe that all-chaos team selection is making more sense now. And then, you know, I don't think this was a game the Swans were ever meant to win. Like, you're going in to face the team who won the grand final against you, they're bringing up the flag. Like, it was going to take more than just a good game for the Swans to win this one. Like, there are some games the teams are just not meant to win. Like, if you're going in to face a team when they're retiring a, you know, legendary player's jersey or something, you're not going in to win. But the lack of fight, especially in the fourth quarter, was a concern. The three points they kicked in the second half were their worst for a second half since... Round 12 of what year? Let's go with 1913, 1971. I don't know. I, I was hoping, historic, but I was hoping for like some pre-war shit. But pre-Sydney? As Craig from Yank on the Footy expressed earlier today during the live chat he was doing, the game of the SCG is going to be a much tougher test. That's just a tough place to play in general. And I'm sure the Swans will have a fired up crowd and just be a better team at that point, be healthier, and they'll be locked in after getting humiliated like this. But yeah, that they didn't at least, I don't know, keep the deficit to like 70 is concerning. Unless I get evidence in the next couple weeks to prove it otherwise, I'm going to think of this game as an anomaly for Sydney. Well, they're going to have some chances to prove themselves. Sydney Derby then at Collingwood. Then they host Creo, which sounded a lot more appealing a while ago. Then at North, then they host Carlton before the bye. Had a fun contest with them last year, I believe, in the Sir Dove Nichols rounds, where the Blues did their typical thing and held on late. Oh, and coming out of the bye, then they got the Saints and a trip to the Gabba. So this, this could be fun. I think we'll know more about them. I don't think we've really seen the Swans at their best, other than parts of the Richmond game, and I mean against first two rounds at Gold Coast and then at home against Hawthorne, who you would expect them to handle, but they've lost three of four now. Yeah, I still I, I still I think they'll figure it out. They've just got to make sure that the psychological effect of this game doesn't get to them because all of a sudden if they let this stick with them they'll see anyone wearing hoops and just start shitting down their leg instead of realizing, hey, they're a really good team, but so are we. 
So it's about how they handle this and how they handle the rematch, which again, I think they'll be in good shape for. And last year, they had a stretch where they lost three out of four. Then they won the next two, had a bye, lost two of three, and then didn't lose again until the grand final. So they're not that far off from where they were at this time last year. Like five and one last year, three and three, sure, but tougher schedule. I'm not sounding the alarm yet. If they lose to GWS somehow, then it's totally okay to overreact and panic. Like, I don't know if you could overreact. I feel like that would just be reacting. Patrick Dangerfield once again plays some of his best footy at Cardinia Park. A goal of behind, 31 disposals, 14 contested possessions, 13 score involvement, 7 clearances, 592 meters gained. He came into the round as the number 3 rated field kick in the league, which was not something I expected out of him, but the Cats continue to be really strong from center bounces, and he's the reason for that. They scored 4-3 from center bounces, and their only better performance within their past 60 games from center bounces was um, in the grand final. And again, this is without Reese Stanley, who hadn't been playing that well. This is without John Segler, who doesn't have too many skills besides in outs, but still pretty staggering showing. Just embodying kind of what David Kaye's been talking about a lot when I've listened to him on First Crack. The game is about getting the ball out of congestion from inside to outside, and Danger's doing that from the bounce. Cam Guthrie, 24 disposals. Max Holmes, 23 disposals, 537 meters gained. When I think of Max Holmes playing footy, I think of spin moves, because he's got those. Tom Stewart, 23 disposals, 505 meters gained. Honestly, was a little bit quiet. Didn't notice him a ton, but hey, he gave me 100. Yeah, he did his job. All the defenders did. Jack Bowes, a behind in 19 disposals. Jeremy Cameron ended up with five goals and 17 disposals, even though he only, he never really had that dominant stretch. It was just like so comfortable watching him and Tom Hawkins do their thing. Aha, chaps chat cans. This was fun saying, I'm really glad we were at full strength this week. Having no key outs really helped us put up 120 for the third week in a row. It would have been tough if we were missing our two rock options, our best small forward and the defender who would usually be assigned to Papley. We had one Papley celebration, but it was subdued and early. The one other thing, the one negative I have from this game is that crowd wasn't that into it. It was just like everyone was just very content. And it, it made me think of like a North Carolina basketball crowd where it's like everyone's just used to success and expects it. Like I love the way the players carried themselves. They weren't, you know, trying to rub it in, give Sydney any bulletin board material. But I would have liked to see something more out of the crowd. I would have liked. Ruby, you know, a celebration like the guy against the D's last year. I, I guess people kind of like had their appetite filled from winning a flag, but you would think, like, you know, first actual home game, flag ceremony. It's like you think people have been drinking all day and celebrating, and you'd think the crowd would be buzzing, and it was, it was pretty quiet. So that's that's my one gripe. I can tell you if I would have if I was there, I would have been really loud. Even if it wasn't, you know, like, I just came from halfway around the world to see this, even if I was a regular. Because the first home game of the year in any sport is special. Oh, and it was cool seeing broadcasters with so much nice stuff to say about Grian's play. He didn't have any huge stat line, but had a really nice showing overall. I think people are just starting to accept that he's really embraced this role, and 
it sucks that I haven't been able to start a goal counter for him for the season. You know, I had that thread last year, but 13 assists. Um, efficiency inside 50, 59.3 to 32.5. I would have thought it would have been higher both ways, actually, because it seemed like every time the Cats got inside 50, led to a goal. I guess the Swans, is just, there weren't any, like, memorable sequences of them putting on a bunch of pressure and not scoring. I think it was just like, you know, they would put it in and get projected immediately. Oh, yeah. So the Swans did stuff. Uh, Luke Parker, 21 disposals, 12 contested possessions. Robbie Fox, 17 and 11 intercepts. But he's not going to be playing next week because he got concussed from late contact with Mitch Duncan. Fox was on the ground. Duncan really couldn't do much, wasn't pinged for it. Errol Golden at 16 disposals and gained 472 meters. Isaac Heaney, a goal from 14 and 8 tackles. James Rowbottom had a behind from 13 disposals, but most notably, he was an octopus. And that's just kind of the way he plays. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter, at Americans Footy. That's where most of our commentary is during games. Individually, I'm on Twitter, at Castle Media. That's Castle with a K. He usually says that, but uh, I did this time. I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is sleeping just very calmly, has been out for a bit, and he's on Instagram, a cat named Brian. By the way, you can always tell which of the two of us is tweeting for the Americans Footy account because we initial our tweets. I think it's nice for the people who get us somewhat regularly into our feed to know, hey, this is which one of them is actually thinking these things. The other way we could have done it is like, you know, one in lowercase, one in uppercase or something. I think this is better. It could just be like some very mundane play and all of a sudden you just see me screaming. Just like, Aaron Hall gains a lot of ground. Jackson Pryor playing well along the boundary. Interesting that we both chose players who have been in and out of the best 22 this year. I wanted to think of someone that wasn't like, you know, someone that normally gets yelled about. Well, success then. We pick up the action with Sunday's games, and I expected Hawthorne to lift at least a little bit in Launceston. Do you even lift, bro? When you skip leg day, when the pre-workout hits you like? I mean, I don't think either of these teams really skipped leg day. Hawthorne 11-10-76, defeated by Adelaide 11-13-79. The Crows had to manufacture a win late. Hawthorne were in it the whole way. It was a two-point Crows lead at quarter time, three at halftime, one at three-quarter time. Crows led by 14 at one point in the third, and then Hawthorne went up by 13 late, so a 27-point swing. But for 14 to be the largest lead in a game where we came to this thinking, oh, Adelaide should have an easy time, it's a testament to Hawthorne not just playing well in Tasmania like they usually do, but having the right system in place, their midfields continuing to grow. I can see, you know, positive trends for them over these past few games. They lost these last two games by a combined five points. They obviously need to get better at finishing these games, but I feel like that's the next step in their evolution. I think the most important focus has been don't give up a huge run of like five plus goals in a row, and they never gave up more than two in a row in this game. So. Yeah, I mean, helps when entering the round, you were the number one stoppage team in the league, which I don't think anybody saw coming. I mean, we already knew what Newcomb could do, but with Tom Mitchell not being in the picture, James Warple is playing 
freer and better than he has since at least 2020, if not earlier. I'll give the Hawks a lot of shit, but I do appreciate and respect the way they're building things right now. By the way, I think the Hawk Talk podcast is excellent. They have some really good commentary and perspective, and I think they kind of summed it up, you know, looking at this game is like, damn, it hurts to lose like this, but big picture signs are obviously good. You know, they went from being down 57-43 to up 76-63. That's a 33-6 run, but Isaac Rankin had a pretty filthy goal with 313 left with a at the end of a handball sequence along the boundary, he ended up kicking a pretty cool snap that we'll talk more about later. Hint, hint. And then Darcy Fogarty became the hero, bombing a drop punt at a 68-degree angle from 34 meters out with 116 left, hiding the Crows up 79-76. And that was the final score. I can only think of one other player who would reliably go for a drop punt from there, and that's Jeremy Cameron. And he hit it easily. And rem- remember, this is not at a venue where, you know, the stands go super high, so the wind plays a factor. And it's a big ground, a somewhat wide ground, Launceston. You've got to have confidence to be able to pull that off. And obviously, Fogarty's confidence was well-placed. I mean, he is one of those accurate set-shot kicks in the league. Had a couple surprising misses, actually, that I thought were going to cost them. But he provided redemption just in time, really. This is a game that I am going to go back and watch in full. It's back-to-back weeks. The Hawks have lost games. They probably feel like they should have won, and you didn't cover either of them. Correct. I get, like, their shitty games, like the one against Sydney a few weeks ago. This was a super tackle-heavy game, the most tackles of any game this season. Yeah, the Hawks with 88, the Crows with 75, so that's... 163 and all. Quick mess. Hawthorne led the way in tackling and in pressure from the beginning. Connor Nash had a massive tackle, I believe, in the fourth quarter. That was a real statement play and could have been looked at as, you know, a, a real winning play had the Hawks been able to close it out. I was late in the third quarter, actually, uh, to get holding the ball against Jake Saligo. And Nash had scored a couple minutes prior to that. I hadn't really thought about Nash that much other than him being tall before this game. I wonder how many people were watching on from County Meath. And remember, this was a Hawthorne midfield that was doing what they were doing without Will Day, who was still suspended. That should have been a one-week suspension. Maybe it'll help them on the road to Harley Reid. They're going to have to go through the Eagles first, or really, the Eagles have to go through them? They play round 10. That's also in Tasmania. Okay, so Hawthorne should win. And then the Eagles will get Harley Reid for two years before he goes home. Head along. I'm going to guess so. Or maybe Carlton, because he could play for their VFL team. But he's from, but I know he's from Bendigo. So you could draw an even closer dusty comparison if Richmond won in on him. I don't know. Hopefully he's compelled to stay longer term wherever he is. That's what you want to see out of these younger pieces most of the time. Other positives for the Hawks. Sam Frost's most positive game the season thus far. He was strong in his one-on-one battles. He had 10 intercepts, and Jarman Impey was a good mover off halfback. When Hawthorne had been at their best these past few years that we've been watching, those two were big reasons why in the back third. I don't have it written down, but I do remember a couple of more negative Frost plays. 
you know, kind of the what what is the term? Frostball or just all chaos captain like he is? Yeah, I think Frostball was the term you would use. Uh, other people have used it too, going back to his time in Melbourne. I can't see him fitting there. You wonder why they were willing to let him go? I like the perspective that pretty much all Crows fans shared. Basically thankful to get the fuck out of there with four points. Now let's never speak of this game again. And it was the old guard for the Crows that stood up when they needed to. Taylor Walker was good all day. He kicked 4-1 and had eight marks. And Rory Sloan had a really big fourth quarter. Might have been his best quarter or even half of footy since, well, for this season, since coming back from his ACL rupture. The term used by college football podcast, The Solid Verbal, that's a podcast that inspires us a lot. Yeah, kind of, we sort of style some of our shows after them in terms of format. We use their format for the, for our intro, even. Anyway, the term that they like to use, or one of the terms they like to use, is when you're clunkers. Like, if you're a top 25 team, and you play like shit against an inferior opponent, you still gotta find a way to win. Now, that's not going to fly for them in the coming weeks. They have no room to clunk. Their upcoming schedule, Collingwood at Geelong, St. Kilda, Bulldogs at Ballarat, Lions, Suns and Darwin, Eagles. Then out of the bye, they get Collingwood again, and then it softens up for a bit. But um, we're going to learn a lot about this Younger Crows group over these next couple months. Um, Tex was talking about some of the maturity that they were showing on the Oval. Heck, as Fogarty was lining up for what ultimately was his winner, Ned McHenry came up to Walker and told him, you know, to think about where he wanted to set up as a forward, whether or not Fogarty kicked it. And then he saw Jordan Dawson making sure that Rory Laird was the one playing against James Sisley on the final bounce so that Dawson could stay back and be the extra man in defense. So the on-field IQ and maturity is starting to show and those are the sort of things you got to have to win a tight game, whether or not you'd like to be in that tight game in the first place. Now, these are the sort of games that if you're a real flag contender, ideally you don't have them in the first place. But if you're looking to get in the eight, you got to get those points. And they did that. And that's the difference between having a realistic shot at being a finalist and being, you know, like a, yeah, we'll finish around 12th type of team. So big big win regardless of how they got it they've still got plenty of time to play better and round into form you don't have to be playing your best football this early in the season but if you're a team that's not gonna you know that you, you don't expect the crows to be racking up points every week so they they don't have that margin for error they had to have this rory sloan with a behind 30 disposals and seven tackles rory laird 29 disposals including 21 contested possessions 12 tackles, 10 clearances. Jake Soligo, a behind, 25 disposals, 15 contested possessions, 8 clearances, 635 meters gained. Jordan Dawson, a goal, a behind, 24 disposals, 480 meters. Lachlan Scholl, a goal and 23 disposals. Josh Rochelle did not kick a goal. He had two behinds, but still made himself valuable. 21 disposals, 8 score involvements, 515 meters gained. I was impressed again by Saligo this game, becoming a really strong contested player. So they've got him and Laird doing that in midfield. Saligo being able to do it a bit more forward. He got those types of players who can work in the guts and then he can move them more outside or just out of congestion. And that's where you could use 
strong. Dawson's really accurate kicking because Dawson is able to play all over the ground and has been doing that more this season. The long-term plan is really starting to come in place for the Crows, and I like what it is. Hawthorne's stats of note, Connor Nash kicked 1-1 from 28 disposals, 7 clearances and 7 tackles. James Sicily, 27 disposals, 11 marks, and 661 meters. I should have given the captaincy in my team to Jai Newcomb. 26 disposals and Octopus, 7 clearances and 483 meters. Carl Amon kicked a goal from 22 disposals. He did kind of get murked on the big Rankin goal. Just kind of swatted him away. Brian Myers' friend James Warple had a goal from 21 and 8 clearances. So a good mix of some of the older faces, but also the younger to, I guess, middle age range of Hawthorne's list starting to come into their own. So you weren't watching the end of that Hawks-Crows game that closely, Ethan, because you drew the Blues Saints assignment. That's right, Carlton, 8-12-60, defeated by St. Kilda, 12-10-82. It's time to consider that the Saints might be legitimately good. I still think they've got that new coach smell, and at some point that wears off and teams start to figure out how to play them, but you look at who they've played and who they've beaten so far, and... You gotta be impressed, even if you're, like, the most skeptical person on the planet. Remember, they beat Frio, which doesn't look as great, blew out the Bulldogs, who have been playing very well since then, beat Essendon, that looks good, blew out the Suns, lost by more than the final score suggested to Collingwood, and then rebounded with this? I mean, I've got my complaints about Carlin, but this one is impressive. Again, they're still a bit shorthanded being without... Max Kane, Tim Membry, and Jack Steele were back in for this one. And you could tell those guys were present from early on. Tim Membry and Jade Gresham play very well together. And they both find a way to make their impact without kind of stepping on the other's toes. They, they bounce off each other well. And before this week, most of my Jack Sinclair commentary had been about his hairstyle and usually not positive. I was really impressed like, his final line of 27 disposals, cool, whatever, that's good. His work along the boundary, his footwork, his ability to handball and create space and keep plays alive, really impressive. And he's got to be one of, like, the top five players in the league in terms of just, like, how he plays along the boundary. Those were my biggest Saints takeaways from this game. Sinclair is doing more um, along the leg up toward the midfield as well. Um, he's always had that slingshot ability, and you put it together, it makes sense that St. Kilda are the number one team in moving the ball from their defensive 50 to their forward 50. But thus far this season, the Saints are also the best at preventing their opponents from doing the same. And that's where the half-forward group is really coming in. Um, Jade Gresham, who you already mentioned, along with Brad Hill, Dan Butler, and Jack Higgins, they're doing the necessary defensive work forcing contests, crumbing, and then rebounding really quickly when the offensive opportunities are there, whether or not they're the ones who created them. Saints are also the number one turnover team, by the way, in addition to the stuff about going into the 50s. They have still not allowed more than 74 points in a game, which is pretty insane. I mean, that's Ross Ball. At the same time, I think they have caught some breaks with opposing forwards playing poorly. On average, they're giving up 59.5 points per game, and frankly, Carlton's forward play fucking sucked in this game. And like, with the amount of forward talent they have, this should not be happening. 
Harry Mackay looked nothing like a Coleman medalist between, I don't know if it was just him playing poorly and kicking wildly, if it was him being deployed in weird spots, but it's like, there's something amiss about his game. This guy should be able to do what Tom Hawkins does. I mean, physically, he's, he's fucking huge. He's got all the talent in the world, and it just hasn't shown up lately. The, the one real positive from the Carlton forwards, I thought, was... I thought it was a pretty good game for Jack Silvani's. He's one of the more chaotic players, but I liked him in this one. He was very active. He limited Cal Wilkie to just one intercept mark, and that intercept mark was a gimme from Mackay. That's, that's the one thing that I heard in, in the analysis that I was listening to that Carlton drew praise for strategically was keeping Silvani close to Wilkie. Should also note that Carlton are going to be without Jesse Motlop next week. He was suspended for a dangerous tackle against Dougal Howard. Now that I've watched it a few more times, yeah, I get, I get the suspension. The head hitting the ground first is always going to do it these days. Other highlights of this game, let's see. There were some pretty bad 50-meter penalties given in this game, mostly against the Saints. Dougal Howard at one point had a kick with his sock because he couldn't get his shoe back on, so he just ended up kicking with his sock. Unfortunately, he couldn't kick a goal with just his sock as Darcy Fogarty did. Carlton actually led this game 50-45. to They had scored 43 in the first half and then kicked 1-3 in the third and 1-2 in the fourth, and as the Saints pulled away, got up by 20 before the end of the third quarter, now, Silvani did get the opening goal of fourth to get it back down to 15, but that was really the last chance they, last time they did much of anything. Carlton seemed uninterested in finishing this game, where they were just going through the motions less, like five, ten minutes. Now, there was a Mitch Owens goal with 17.24 left that restored a 21-point lead. He kicked from 62 when it was like just far enough that Jacob Wiedering couldn't chase it down to the goal square. I like Mitch Owens, Pepper, Machito Pepper. I also like the old Saints logo, which I saw on a few banners. The stick figure with the halo. Something really funny about that to me. Stats for this one. Mentioned Sinclair already. Hunter Clark, a goal, 20 disposals, 468 meters. Jade Gresham, a goal and a behind on 20 disposals. Rowan Marshall, a goal, a behind, 21 hitouts, 17 disposals. Machito Pepper Owens. Two goals, 16 disposals, and Dan Butler kicked 3-1. I thought Josh Battle, it was interesting. Commentators had a lot of positives to say about him. I noticed him on a lot of negative plays, especially in the first half. I think his game kind of ended up being like a very eventful net zero. What's a battle? Interesting next few weeks for the Blues, by the way. <laughs> yep. After they presumably handle the Eagles, though it is in Perth, Still, the Eagles just aren't healthy enough to really put up a fight. Then they host the Lions, host the Bulldogs. Well, that game's with Marvel either way, basically. Carlton home game, though. Then it's their home game against Collingwood. Not that not that whose home game it is there affects much, but we'll call it car call because of that. Then at Sydney, at Melbourne, Essendon, and then it gets a little easier with Gold Coast before they're by. So... The form they've shown these couple of games, uh, if they if if that keeps up, they're going to get punished, and you're going to see all sorts of Michael Voss discourse. I mean, we talked about him just letting his guys play last year, and that's 
definitely still the case. The problem is, you know, they're looking for the obvious connections to the Coleman's. They're looking too long when they've got the pace in the middle. They've got the depth again in the midfield with most of their best 22 out there. And also they just need to vary their targets of the forward 50. Obviously, it can't be Motlop next week, but Corey Dern needs to be worked into things more in particular, even though he did have that, you know, one kick that cost them finals last year. But he's had more than that in terms of, like, what the fuck plays. But he's got to be the third or fourth option right now, either him or Silvani, and he's a damn good third option. Like, I'll talk my shit about that play especially, but he's a skilled player. Carlton had, I believe, the top six in ranking points and disposals in this game, which just shows you how meaningless a lot of their movement was and how directionless it'll end up being. Adam Chera had a goal from 39 disposals, seven clearances at 625 meters gained. Sam Walsh, 38, 26 uncontested possessions and nine marks. Blake Akers, 36, 11 marks and 644 meters. Patrick Cripps kicked two behinds, 34 disposals, though 22 of his were contested. He's still that guts player in the middle. George Hewitt had 29 disposals and gained 30 meters. Is that right, Ethan? Yep. That's why I put it in there. Yeah, wow. You want to talk meaningless. Nick Newman. Hello, Newman. 28 and 10 marks. Few of those contested. Jacob Wietering, 22 and 9 marks. Maybe a few more contested. And then, in terms of goal kickers, Harry Mackay kicked 1-2 from 17 disposals at 14 marks. He's got so much marking ability. Where What happened to the goal kicking? And Charlie Kernow kicked 3-3 from 15 disposals. All three of those were in the first half, and I had predicted that he would kick six in this one. And, I mean, I got halfway, but... Uh, and you got that a Charlie seems going to have a huge round. Yeah, um, wrong one, though. Also, Ross Lyde is now 6-0 against Michael Voss. That is maybe my favorite... Sir Swamp Thing stat, you know, Ross versus Voss, and that Ross was sitting there for the taking last year. Gold Coast 14-13-97, defeating North 7-12-54, ended up being a snooze of a loss for North in Todd Goldstein's 300. He became the sixth kangaroo to reach that milestone solely with North. I mean, what really to go into about this one? Gold Coast were able to work out the distance early, and they had the pressure from the beginning. They were getting numbers toward ground balls. It just was pretty predictable as to what the Suns were able to do. I guess other than Ben King getting back into form and kicking five. He had an easy time at it, though. Had too much space for marks. In general, North looked disorganized in defense. And that's a real concern when Ben McKay and Griffin Loeb were both in there. But Ben McKay actually played. That's why Harry was so shitty. He was also trying to play at Gold Coast at the same time. It all makes sense. So does Ben need to get hurt again? No. Harry just needs to kick better. Um, this wasn't a game that I watched super closely, but I will say this. Bailey Humphrey's really settling in nicely, and he's only 19, right? Holy stuff. He could be a nice piece for whoever he goes to eventually because he's a son. Let's see, played for Gippsland. He was pick number six in the 2022 draft. So I might just have to measure him against Jai Clark and some of these others. 
Clark's coming along more slowly in the reserves. I mean, glad that Humphrey's getting the time right away. And yeah, settling in, kicked his first goal last week at Norwood. Had a nice mark to do that. That was one of the nominees back in round five. He was one of my big takeaways from this game. Kind of going further back for Gold Coast, looking at the other big items. Matt Rowell was on the ball early and was consistently the hardest worker at ground level. That's nothing new for him. And in terms of their backs, Sam Collins won his one-on-one matchup with Nick Larkey pretty much all game. While on rebound, Lockie Weller continues to be an effective kick and has just been able to start a lot of scoring. Weller and Will Powell going going uh, along the wings there. Still would like to see Caleb Graham in there, but Bichard didn't play better. Got the job done this week. Positive takeaways from this one about North, Ethan? I got a couple in mind, but I want to see if you have them too. Uh, Jack Zebel was good. Yeah, Zebel was visible in defense like we expect. Um, Jaden Stevenson seems to be performing consistently, which never happened before. Yeah, Stevenson scored a couple, managed to set up another. I've been waiting to see a string of good games out of him in a row, and I think Alistair Clarkson is getting on him in the right way to do that. And then Curtis Taylor has also been more of a success this year than the past couple. Now, can North be good enough that I'll be able to automatically differentiate him from Paul Curtis without thinking about it? I mean, I'm already able to differentiate them. They look pretty different, play different roles. Taylor's got a taller profile. I need North to be good enough that I don't have to think about it. And I need North to just stop looking for Nick Larky so much. I would say something about there being a magnet in the Sharon, but clearly the magnet wasn't strong enough for Larky to be able to mark. But North's pressure has really dipped in general from what we saw the first couple rounds. Their more notable players have looked slower for the large part aside from Zebel. So we're starting to see North kind of as we expected them to be. And Harry Sheasel's looking human again, having less of an impact as well with Aaron Hall being back. In defense, they actually moved him forward in the second half to minimal effect. Gold Coast stats, Noah Anderson, 28 disposals, 9 score involvements, 8 clearances and 8 marks. Lockie Weller, 28, 14 marks, 9 score involvements in 569 meters. Ben Ainsworth scored 2-1 from 24 disposals at 10 score involvements. Darcy McPherson had 24 disposals as well and 10 marks. And, you know... Didn't have any real stupid plays in this one, so maybe he'll get his awareness rating bumped up to two. Brandon Ellis kicked two behinds for 21 disposals and nine marks. Jack Lacocious won two from 20 and 10 marks. Will Powell had 20 disposals. Glad that both he and Lockie Weller are performing well considering the injuries they had last year. Matt Rao had 18 disposals, not much, but 12 tackles. And you're going to probably see him on the ball more with Tuk Miller being out with some sort of leg injury. Believe it's got to do with the meniscus, a short to medium term ordeal. No exact timetable yet. Jared Witts had a goal from 21 hitouts and 17 disposals. He made his return after missing the last couple rounds with general soreness, which I don't know. You can make a pun out of general soreness. I can't really think of, of a good one right now, though. Makes me wonder what Ned Boyle's long term prospects are, though. Because I'm not sure if he's under contract beyond this year. Team stats that really stand out. Efficiency inside 50. 66.7% for the Suns to 38 for North. Marks for the game 135 to 69, including 20 to 6 inside 50. I mean, checks out with what I saw. 
So Suns are two and four. They face Richmond next week, but it's at Marvel. Richmond should still clean that up, I think. Uh, actually, no. Cleaning it up wouldn't be the case. They need to work out a big third quarter margin. After that, home against Melbourne at West Coast, Q Clash at Brisbane, and then the two weeks in Darwin. But give me a couple wins. Three might be a little bit tall of a task. I just don't see a path to finals unless they do that. I think they really do need to win at least three of their six games heading into the bye. I think, yeah, if they get into the bye at five and seven, it's not out of the question. Jack Zebel led North with 23 disposals, eight marks, 499 meters gained. Aaron Hall, 22 disposals and 530 meters because, you know, he's the kickout guy. Griffin Lowe, 17 disposals and 10 intercepts. I, you know who can really use that help defensively? Hmm, Freya. Yep. You won the move. Melbourne, 15-6-96, defeating Richmond, 11-12-78. This scoreline just seems misleading. I regret sleeping off and on throughout this game because, oh yeah, even when I went back and watched it after, there were a bunch of really bad calls that made my blood boil, and I'm just really happy that Melbourne won this game. Like, I wouldn't care that much about who wins this game, and I would just be like, wow, what a great crowd, 80,000, but holy shit. Yeah, Melbourne got the wrong end of so many decisions, really in the first three quarters. There were a few calls that went Richmond's way in the second half, but I would say at least two-thirds of the bad calls favored the Tigers. And I mean, it was just like anything and everything. Really, Morris Rioli not giving away a 15-meter penalty to Alex Newell-Bowen when he wasn't the one on the mark, but wrapped him up. I will say this, Rioli like showed his hands pretty quickly, like, shit, I didn't mean to do that, but nobody's been getting that benefit of the doubt, so why does he suddenly... You had a protected area 50 against Jake Lever, even though he was behind the man standing on the mark. Clearly, the rule is that it's, you know, five meters in all directions for the protected zone. And I didn't see actually many complaints about that from people who knew the rules. But still, it's like, have some feel. It didn't impact the play in the slightest. As I remember, Razor said after a controversial game one time, I only read the book. I didn't write it. I, I like that phrase. It's like. A cool way of saying, I don't make the rules, I just enforce them. I think this was after a controversy around the siren in a Hawthorne game. You had Camden McIntosh kicking at Stephen May while he was on the ground and nothing really being done about that. No fine, nothing. Richmond got off to a great start in this game. They went on a 25-1 run to close the first quarter. Noah Cumberland kicked three goals in that first quarter. They led by 14 at half. Demons cut it to two with a Clayton Oliver goal after the third quarter siren, and you felt like that was the big swing. And then sure enough, the fourth quarter belonged to the Demons. I think it belonged mostly to Jacob Van Royen. Was just about to say he was excellent. He didn't get the Rising Star nominee for this round. Jai Coley did, but Van Royen's going to get his. And I, I think it was probably just because he didn't have a great full game. He had a great fourth quarter. He was really struggling for opportunities in the first part of it. And I saw a lot of Melbourne fans online calling for him to be dropped after having no impact. And then there he was. After Cade Chandler kicked his third goal of the game to take the lead early in the fourth, 
Van Royen took a hanger over Noah Balta. He then, he then missed his next shot, but got a pack mark right after that and kicked truly there. So two goals in a few, in a space of a few minutes. At that point, Melbourne led by 16. So when the game was on the line, he was there. He's barely 20 and he's able to do that. A lot of players that age, a lot of athletes in any sport would get discouraged by not being involved for so much of the game. Not him. He rose to the occasion. And I've just been so happy to see different players being there for Melbourne, especially in the goal-kicking department between Van Royen, Chandler. Alex Neil Bowen has quietly had one goal every game. And I was asking you this before we were on air, Ethan. Like, if you went through Melbourne's best 22, how many players would you go through before you said Alex Neil Bowen? At least 15, I said. And that's not a knock on him. It's just they have other quality player he's a quieter contributor he's been that way he's never been someone that i've said like you need to drop him but he's never somewhere it's like oh yeah he's you know this huge centerpiece van royen just adds a different dimension to their forward group being the big contested mark guy because they've got guys like Kazi pickett that make plays off the ground you've got Guys that can kind of weave in and out like Bailey Fritch. Van Royen adds one of the few things that was lacking, especially without Luke Jackson. And with Max gone being hurt these past few weeks, he was back in this game. And you could really feel that he was back because Melbourne were looking for him a lot. But yeah, you didn't want to rush him back into a whole lot of contests. And they didn't have to. Richmond once again played an undisciplined fourth quarter, although this time... They weren't just like, you know, trying to fight or talk shit or whatever. They just missed five straight set shots at one point. And there's some pretty easy ones in there that I don't know if they would have won, but they would have at least had a fighting chance in the final minutes. All the while, their pressure dropped off. I've been really happy with some of the work that Trent Koch and Marlon Pickett were doing to apply pressure in the forward half, but I noticed that starting to taper off in the third, and it was absent for much of the fourth, and Jacob Hopper vanished after a strong first quarter, where he was arguably one of the best players on the ground, along with Jaden Short, who was definitely Richmond's best of field throughout the game. But this is just another trademark Richmond loss that they've had these past couple years. Um, I went through and looked back at their results because I wanted to make sure I had this correct. Since the start of last season, Richmond have had 14 non-winning results, 12 losses and two draws. And they have registered eight of those 12 losses after leading a three-quarter time. And they led a three-quarter time in both of those draws as well. That's 10 of 14. Then they took the lead in the fourth quarter in two of those other games. 12 of the 14 games that Richmond have lost or drawn since the start of last year, they had the lead at some point in the fourth quarter. The AFL X score isn't the be-all and end-all. Sometimes it doesn't, like, accurately represent the, you know, degree of difficulty or ease of a kick. But it tends to be pretty reliable for set shots, at least. And Melbourne's expected score from this game, 83.3. Now, this doesn't factor in rushed behind, so you can add in one more point for that for Richmond, in which case their expected score would be 84. Example of how AFLX score doesn't always tell the full story. It measures that Charlie Cameron goal just being a kick from 14.4 meters out in a 38-degree angle. So that has an 89% chance of a goal, but that's that's not really what happened. 
again, set shots are where that shines. And Richmond missed five in a row. So yeah, can scrutinize those all you want. I also really noticed a positive impact of Brody Grundy in the second half. He was dominant in the ruck and in the clearance work off those immediate contests. And it was almost as if Simon Goodwin and company realized, hey, we've got a huge advantage in the ruck. They're trotting out Ben Miller, Samson Ryan, and Noah Balta. And while I like a lot of what Samson Ryan has been doing, he's clearly not there yet. That was really where the game turned, even though the second half wasn't like this Grundy and gone onslaught. Just a lot opened up from those two taking over, even if they didn't take over for the whole second half. Those few minutes they did set the stage for a lot. The Frank Checker Hughes medal for best on ground went to Jack Viney, who kicked a goal from 30 disposals. Was a little surprised Oliver didn't win it. Oliver kicked a goal from 31 and gained 544 meters. Christian Petraka gained 609 meters from 26 disposals. Michael Hibbard, welcome back as well. 23 disposals, 12 contested possessions, and 12 intercepts, providing really nice support for Stephen May alongside Jake Lever. May had 22 disposals and 11 intercepts. Lever, 20 disposals, 10 intercepts, 10 marks. You got those three together, and that allows Harrison Petty to go forward as well, where he did all right. Just good depth there, as tends to be the case for Melbourne in general. Ed Langdon had a goal from 20 disposals. Max Gaughan kicked 1-2 from 17. 17 hitouts, 13 contested possessions, and 8 marks. Disposal efficiency in this one was pretty drastic difference. 79% for Melbourne to 68.2 for Richmond. It's in line with Melbourne getting so many more uncontested possessions. 45 more of them specifically. And some of that, you know, has to do with the way they kind of handle the ball in their own end. But they're good at creating, you know, low pressure, uncontested chances for themselves. That's been something they've been good at for three years. Now, here's a misleading stat, though. One percenters favored Richmond 50-37. to 37. I, I would not have guessed that watching this game. Watching the first three quarters, I can get it. For the Tigers, Tim Taranto, 33 disposals, 10 score involvements, and an octopus. Jaden Shorta behind, 30 disposals and 644 meters. Dustin Martin kicked 1-3 with 25 disposals, 579 meters gained. I said last week that Samson Ryan had an almost game for the Tigers. Dusty had it this week, tried to do a lot, couldn't do all of it, especially in the goal-kicking department. Jacob Hoffer, a goal, 23 disposals and 10 marks. Marlon Pickett, a week after I was campaigning for him to be omitted, 23 disposals, 534 meters gained. Nick Vlostone, 21 disposals, 12 intercepts and 8 marks. All right, we've got one last game to do. Anzac Day, Collingwood 13-12-90, defeating Essendon 11-11-77. I just want to start by saying this. Overall, the success of these two teams does not affect my well-being. In fact, I'd probably enjoy it more if Collingwood struggles. But to have these teams at a combined 8-2 and two, heading into Anzac Day contributed to a fucking amazing environment and atmosphere. Second largest home and away crowd ever ever largest Anzac crowd ever more than 95,000 so in the space of 24 hours you had well I wouldn't say 175,000 fans because you probably had a, at least some subsection of people that went to both games but 175,000 times the things to scan tickets either vibrating if you're doing it off your phone or made the bidding sound 
or whatever noise it may be. But as a lot of people went to watch the footy. And best of all, it was not just a big crowd. It was loud. I mean, you had like forty to 50,000 people screaming, oh! every five seconds. Sometimes with Anzac Day, you know, the game is such a big cultural event. People are going to show up. People were into this. This was fun. And ultimately, Collingwood did Collingwood things with a 44-3 fourth quarter. I thought the first half of this game, while it was close, was not that exciting. It was exciting if you just are really into that low-scoring, high-pressure, ground-based contest, which this game definitely was, and I got a lot of enjoyment out of it. It was. I also just embraced how much this felt like a September game. Oh, that part, definitely. It, it felt like finals footy. The, I mean, the, the pressure was high going both ways. There was very little open space anywhere on the ground. One-on-ones were kept really tight the whole way. Nick Markman played a good first quarter and Collingwood trailed 20-2, to two, but Jordan Degoe scored from 54 at the quarter time. Siren to cut it to 20-10. Collingwood went into the half with a 37-35 lead, although Kyle Langford had a goal after a Collingwood fan just brought the ball in front of him instead of handing it to him. Might have given him the Italian arm gesture afterwards. Oh, he did. It was... The whole thing was really funny, and Langford afterwards just, like, pointing at him and smiling was perfect. Can we have given that fan a 50 and forced him to watch from, like, 50 meters away at a worse angle? That would have been really funny if someone had done that. So, I'm all for it. I'm not in favor of, like, just ejecting fans for something like that, but the idea of giving a fan a 50-meter penalty is, I think just conceptually, it's really fun. Collingwood's clearance success in the second quarter opened up the game. The Bombers evened it out near the start of the third quarter, and I guess exceeded it for for decent enough stretches because they scored six goals to one in the third. They were getting more meaningful connections in a lot of different spots. A couple important possessions again for Kyle Langford, Archie Perkins stayed really prominent even after he got a little bit of attention on the bench, looked looked like he might have banged up his leg, was testing if he could jump, but came back on and kicked a goal to bring it out to 10 points in the middle of the quarter. In all that, though, Gene Laverty went down and tried to come back, but couldn't stay on for long. So the defensive structure for Essendon was disrupted there. They had Nick Hyde in from the beginning rather than having him be that late burst guy as the sub. Not dead Ben Hobbs was the sub instead, so that's the spot where he came into the game. The more I think about it, the more it makes sense that Essendon's defensive struggles came with Laverde out because he, I think he's one of their better intercept defenders, and I don't know if that would have been enough, but maybe it would have slowed Collingwood's role a little bit. You know, I said at the end of the third quarter that we were into the Pies are still a chance territory. This wasn't like we were at, at the Gabba and trying to struggle through BT commentary about it. We stayed really invested in this. 28 points isn't all that much considering what Collingwood can do. And uh, they did. It started with Billy Frampton, who had gotten absolutely bullied by Sam Draper to set up the last goal of the third quarter. Frampton marks in a pack from Oleg Markov to cut it back to 22. And then there were a couple of Big missed opportunities for Essendon, including one 45 seconds after this, where Sam Wiedemann, who otherwise 
played a very good game and has had a very good year overall, hit the post on the run. If he converts that, the lead's back out to 28, and I don't know if Colton would ever really get that momentum going. Instead, barely five minutes later, it's a nine-point game. Clearances for the quarter are 11-1 Collingwood after a Nick Dacos goal. Then Trey Rusco, who up until that point had been kind of an eventful net zero, but had a really nice fourth quarter. He hit Jack Ginevan in the middle. That cuts it to three. Just a reminder, at this point, Collingwood were without Scott Pendlebury. He'd gotten an eye poke and did not return for the last 15 and a half minutes of clock time. So Collingwood worked this back from a 22-point deficit without Pendlebury in addition to the outs they already had coming into the game. Bombers had their other big chance to restore some momentum, but Jai Menzi missed on the run from 31. I like Menzi. I believe this was, what, his eighth game? But unfortunately, he showed that he still got some learning and developing to do, including this miss, and just seemed a little overwhelmed in the fourth quarter altogether. I don't know if that's because of the stage. I'm going to say it's probably more just to do with Collingwood being really good in those situations than him being like overwhelmed because there were a lot of people watching. Yeah, when I hear you talking about experience, Ethan, it's not, you know, experience necessarily in terms of a whole lot of games played, considering there's a lot of youth in this Collingwood list. It's experience in the clutch, experience in close games late and in coming back in the fourth quarter. Unfortunately, we were robbed of this being, you know, one of those classic Collingwood wins by two goals or less, but it was almost there. After that Menzi miss, Collingwood took the lead thanks to, guess who? Nick Dacos. And Bo McCreary was the one who created the opportunity. McCreary didn't necessarily have the biggest impact game on the stat sheet, but always has a nose for the ball, puts it into good space if he can't actually make the connection with a mark. He got the ball going. Jamie Elliott handball to Dacos, and Collingwood took the lead with eight minutes remaining. Every time I watch McCreary, I feel like he makes such high-quality play. He's, I think he's just an undervalued player because the eyes obviously go elsewhere with Collingwood for multiple reasons, but he was there the whole way. Then comes the last real chance for Essendon. Jake Stringer couldn't mark would have given him a chance to retake the lead. Strayer had one handball in the fourth quarter. That, that, that was it for him. That was all his impact. Sam Draper drew an obvious free kick against Ash Johnson in a ruck contest, and then Draper had a kick from 34 that would have put him back in front. He missed right, and you really felt like that was it. Sidebottom ends up scoring a goal less than a minute later. That stretches the lead out to seven. Essendon tried holding up a sign with a pair of aces and poker chips to say all in. Um, I have an issue with this. What, is it that we've already seen enough betting ads in Australian sports? No. My issue is that these signs are too obvious. The point of having these signs is to, like, disguise something. Ramen noodles. Like, Hawthorne's ramen sign? Nobody on the outside is going to know what that means. Like, when... When a college football team holds up the Cinderella Burger King sign, nobody outside of their team knows what the fuck that means. That's what it's supposed to do. That wouldn't have affected the outcome of the game. Collingwood ended up getting that last goal, McCreary after the siren, which kind of killed the vibe. You know, the siren goes, and then we have one last kick, and then everyone gets to celebrate. 
I mean, the biggest cheer had already happened, too. Yeah. But Steel Sidebottom closed out this game really well. Really consistent performer. Had it not been for Nick Dacos being Nick Dacos, I would say I would say Steel Sidebottom was your obvious best on ground. I think the votes would have to go, obviously, three for Nick Dacos, but I'd go two for Sidebottom and one for Darcy Moore, who I thought did a really nice job as an intercept defender, usually kind of at the front of Collingwood's own 50. And I was worried that he wouldn't be able to do that as much, having to cover for Nathan Murphy being out. But Moore was able to keep in that same role because of Trey Rusco doing enough positive things, as well as Frampton being able to stay back enough. That was partially because Nathan Kruger ended up being the main ruck, came in after just one VFL game, and hey, this time he didn't fuck up his shoulder. He got subbed out, but that was a tactical sub. For Will Kelly, brother of Essendon's Jake, and they're both sons of Collinwood CEO Craig. They're the first pair of brothers to play against each other on Anzac Day. I liked the way Essendon carried themselves after this game. They looked disappointed, pissed, not like, you know, lying on the ground, destroyed, but you tell they felt this was an important game. They understand it's one that means a lot to the club and to the fans, but they don't, they didn't look like completely broken inside. Now, I hope they have a hangover heading into the next week, considering they played Geelong. Then they got trips to Port and to the Gabba before Dreamtime. That's a rough next four weeks, especially coming off this result. And it's a short turnaround as well, obviously, because it's just five days between Anzac Day and the country game on Sunday. By the way, Geelong just released currencies for this game that have, like, a bunch of wheat in one of the stripes. Really, really playing into it. I I love it. So what are Essendon going to do? Something that creates a clash? Probably. But I... I don't think you can be that disappointed in Essendon. I think they just, they ran into an unstoppable force down the stretch. And they were a movable object. Yeah, they left 15 points out there, but they're getting better. And I thought Will Snelly was really nice. I really like how he's played all over the ground. And he's someone I gave no thought to before this year. So I'm not going to rip on Essendon too much. And even if this kicks off something of a losing streak for them, they put themselves in a good position where they can afford it, and as long as they put up a fight and don't just get completely rolled over, it'll be hard to be too negative about them. Also want to mention, going back to Darcy Moore for a second, great post-game speech as well, really putting the game into context of the greater meaning of Anzac Day as a holiday. It was an excellent speech. I thought when Nick Dacos came up to receive the medal, he spoke well, he spoke very briefly, but clearly had been like, trained for this it's like it's very obvious he was born for this and then after he talked a bit about the game darcy said all the right things and more about the day all the right things and more oh god i didn't even try to do that i'm gonna go for a little bit of nick dacos discourse as we get into the stats here he's good so he had two goals in the behind 40 disposals 604 meters game but 29 uncontested possessions and 7 contested, I think. The disposal numbers stand out. The fact that enough of them were effective were good, but even if he didn't have a lot of contested possessions when he did win the ball in those spots, he ended up creating really good opportunities out of them. My opinion on him is he's a really talented 20-year-old, and even if the numbers are a bit inflated, 
you watch the kid and you see just how skilled he is. He plays way above his age. I did think he and really the entire team in the third quarter, their handballs kind of sucked. And then they got that together and finished strong. Josh Dakehouse, 30 disposals, 10 score involvements. Steel Sidebottom, who, you know, how Nick Dakehouse plays older than his age. Steel plays younger. Steel does not play like he's 32. And also he looks 42 with a shaved head. It looked very freshly shaved considering how bright it was compared to the rest of him. Well, Crawl Dome did good work. 30 disposals, 10 score involvements, and a goal. Jordan Degoli, two goals behind, 28 disposals, 12 score involvements. We said it would be really poetic in a sense, or just topical if he had a big game against Essendon, considering he was linked to them all of last year. His goal at the end of the first quarter was huge. It got lost in everything else, but that was huge. Tom Mitchell... I didn't really notice him throughout the game much until the fourth quarter, but 23 disposals, including 16 contested possessions, eight tackles. John Noble had maybe one of the most interesting plays of the day. He finished with 22 disposals and 489 meters gained. But what I'll remember about him is he had this awful kick that went out of bounds, giving Essendon a great chance. He redeemed himself by spoiling the ensuing kick, but... Andrew Phillips ended up handballing to Alwyn Davey Jr. for a goal. Still, just to see Noble like bounce back like that instantly was pretty impressive. And that's the sort of thing that like during film review, the coaches will be all over. Braden Maynard had a really bad turnover lead to a goal, but still ended up with eight marks, 19 disposals in the behind. And Darcy Moore, like I said, great job as an intercept defender, plus a couple more that might not count as intercepts because he just knocked him down, but 17 disposals, 11 intercepts, 7 marks. This guy was, like, primed for this captain role so perfectly in terms of how he plays, how he leads by example, how he puts himself in so many different spots on the field to help the team. Like, for all the negatives about Alex Pierce as captain so far, Darcy Moore is doing everything right. And I'm not just saying that because they're winning games. There's something about the way he plays, the way he carries himself. He was primed for this role for ages, too. Being a father-son player made it seem like it was even more cut out for him. Hitouts were 50-29 to 29 in favor of Essendon. Billy Frampton didn't immediately get to the ball in the ruck when he was there, but he, he continued having an impact in the couple seconds after that, and Collingwood ended up plus one in clearances. I noticed his role much more just in pack marks in general even if he wasn't the one getting the ball just having him physically there makes a difference and creates space and that's why it was so important to have that ruck coverage in the form of Kruger as well Darcy Parrish led Essendon with 27 disposals 14 contested possessions and nine clearances Mason Redmond at 23 disposals at 540 meters Will Setterfield 22 Jai Caldwell, 19 and 8 tackles, and only got a fine for the little punch he gave to Nick Dacos. I, th- I think that's appropriate. I thought he played a really good game as well. Not huge possession numbers, but good. And Kyle Langford, Essendon are so much better when he's out there. 3 1 from 17. If yeah, I, I guess Parrish would have been Essendon's best, and maybe he gets a vote. I still think the votes should go Dacos 3, side bottom 2. More one. Had Essendon held on, I would have campaigned for Langford. Yeah, you could could have campaigned for him. You could have campaigned for Caldwell. Again, I really liked Sam Wiedemann's game, despite that pretty pivotal miss. You know who I would have given best on 
ground two actually, or what I would have given best on ground two. The the post that guys crashed into. Yup, the left behind post at the Putt Road End collected Jai Menzi and Brody Majacek within the first half. And they were like big collisions. Um, I think the real star there is the padding because both guys got up okay very quickly. Yeah, it wasn't like um Tim Broomhead from a few years ago when his leg wrapped around the post and he broke it. Craig Wessels alerted us to that one today. Anyway, this this game in particular, like more so than the last couple of years, really gave us a sense of the cultural impact of Collingwood versus Essendon being on Anzac Day. Like there's something really special to that. And this game proved it. Now give us a better jumper clash and we will embrace it forever. Yeah, between Collingwood with the black back with the white numbers and Essendon wearing black with the red sash. I mean, I get, you know, you want to do the poppy thing, but don't forget the red KFC ad on Collingwood as well. Yeah, Essendon at least should have had like red pants or something. And they've had them in the past, apparently. I don't know, maybe it'll be easier when Essendon's the home team. I don't know, regardless. Great game, no matter how it looked. We were able to follow it. Hopefully you had a good, had an easy time following it as well. With that, we're pretty much done with the Anzac round. So we'll finish this thing off as usual with our nominees for Mark and Goal of the Week. And main character. But uh, yeah, let's start with the stuff that you guys could still vote on. Mark of the Week, the round five winner was... Cody Wakeman over Kane Farrell. We both strongly believe it should have been Harry Himmelberg marking over James Sicily before kicking the game winner. This is an example of Victorian bias. Round six, your nominees, Marcus Bonampelli over Sean Darcy, Joe Danaher over Sam Taylor, and Jacob Van Royen over Noah Balta. I've got Bonampelli. Benjamin, what about you? Bot. That's an easy one. I mean, Bonampelli was all over the oval, doing the right things pretty much everywhere he was. And that's the play that sticks with me the most out of these three, even though it was in the first game of the round. But yes, Harry Himmelberg should have two nominations locked up for Brownlow Knight. He had the awesome mark against the Crows round one where he had amazing hang time, and then he should have had it for round five. Hopefully that's a case where even though he didn't win the round, the league says, fuck it, that's top three. Goal of the week? Last week, Kyle Langford won it. He pushed Stephen May off the ball and kicked outside the boot from 46. But what the hell? Why wasn't it Zach Tui? Anti-Irish bias? I don't know. Tui got the ball from Brad Close and got away from Tom Barris, which is no easy feat. He took a bounce and then kicked outside of the boot at a ridiculous angle. For Tui to be doing that is... For anyone to be doing that is a hell of a play. It stood out more because it was Zach Tui for me. Maybe some people don't like Moroccan sunsets. Maybe they're, you know, part of the... Maybe they prefer Western Sahara sunsets. Ooh, do we have any Sahrawis listening? Nominations? Well, you know, let me rank these from worst to best out of these nominations because I think it's pretty clear. Dustin Martin had one of his classic dusty goals where he put a don't argue on Michael Hibbert and brushed past Ed Langdon. Noah Cumberland let it bounce through, but, I mean, that was a garbage time goal. They'd already lost. It was a nice play. Yes, it was classic Dusty, but imagine if he was able to do that actually when it mattered. Even if it happened when it mattered and Isaac Rankin's goal was in garbage time, I'd still take Rankin's. Rankin over Martin, yeah. Um, Rankin, we talked about this goal earlier. He got the handball from Ben Keyes, got away from Seamus Mitchell, and ran along the boundary. He swatted away Carl Amon like he was a fly on his wall. 
and snap to make it a one-goal game with about three minutes to go. But um, Charlie Cameron, he wins. He deflected that Jack Gunston centering kick as he jumped. That was his second of seven goals, and I can just still see the visual of that super easily. I can't believe that he not only meant to do that, but actually executed it in-game. Like, that's not something you practice. It better be there on Brownlow night. I, I hope we have two more awesome contenders, but that's, that one's going to be tough to beat. He's got the car as it stands after round six. All right, main character. Just a reminder, the round five winner was the all teams should merge guy. We put this one out to a Twitter poll for the top four. We gave a fifth place honorable mention because Twitter polls are limited to four options. But you had the Collingwood fan who wouldn't give Kyle Lang for the ball and just that entire exchange, which maybe if Essendon or one could have ranked higher. Number four, Rory Lobb, and also just Frio's general reactions to him. There is a brewery in Perth that had a beer called Lobster Tears, and Rory said he might drink one of them to celebrate the win. He did. Third place, the left-behind post on the punt road end. Number two for his seven goals and obvious goal of the year candidate, Charlie Cameron. But number one, the winner is Nick Dacos and perhaps more so the camera regularly showing his family celebrating every time he did anything. I would want to see the camera panning to Josh on Josh for some of those reactions because obviously his dad is one of the greatest players in Collingwood history. But it's awesome, you know, seeing that sort of sibling reaction on the Oval as well. We haven't gotten a lot of it unless it's, you know, the two of them getting around each other after the action's already happened. Like, I would love to see the vision on, like, if Josh is making a play, like, what's Nick's reaction to it as it's going on and vice versa. So, uh, hey, Seven and Fox Footy Cameramen, if you're listening. This was a long episode because we had a lot to talk about for a couple games, but uh, just some something to leave you on at the end of this. Oliver, I don't want to butcher his name, but I probably will, Gigats or something like that. Something Hungarian or Polish with a lot of consonants. Good statistician. He said this is the first time that St. Kilda is first and Collingwood is second after round six or later since 1966. So, uh, Sainters, something to get excited about, I guess. Something more to get excited about. Yom Kippur is like a couple days after the grand final, though, so maybe let's not get too ahead of ourselves. It's still going to fall during the High Holy Days, though. Round 7 is going to be here very, very quickly, considering we're recording this late Wednesday Australian time. So we're going to turn around and record our preview tomorrow. So you can end up listening to these two episodes in very quick succession. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. He's at Castle Media with a K. Benjamin's at BenjaminHK01. Brian Harambe's on Instagram at CatNameBrian, and he's still sleeping here. He's actually twitching right now. He's clearly in REM. And hopefully soon I'll be sleeping too, and hopefully soon this episode will be out. Final estimate, hour 58. (laughs) 